0: This is Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. Armadillo populations in Missouri are on the rise, and they're here to stay. Hunting and fishing in Missouri are a prime hobby for a lot of people. The Missouri Department of Conservation has proposed that those permit prices go up just a little bit. And we also listened to an episode from the podcast Pathways to Prevention, which deals with one choice, which is the latest health standard in the battle against drug use. This time of year, plants are growing in full force. That includes invasive non-native species that can do some real damage in many ways. Friend of show Carol David of the Missouri Prairie Foundation talks with Ashley Bird about what we can do about that and about the work of the Invasive Plants Council.
1: Our goals are to really elevate the need for early detection and control of invasive plants in our state, which cause serious ecological and economic challenges for taxpayers, for homeowners, uh, for state and federal agencies, really anybody who owns or has a responsibility to take care of land.
2: Well, Carol, before we talk about what that impact is, uh, who's on this council? Are those the people you just mentioned that are impacted?
1: Um, we do have representation from uh, a private citizen, but it's, it, we have uh, conservation professionals from state and federal agencies, from nonprofit groups. Um, we have representatives from the horticulture industry, from the agriculture community, uh, ecological contractors, people whose whose work involves removing invasive, removing and treating invasive plants. So, um, it's really great that we have so many different perspectives represented um, we also have uh, representation from the Missouri Department of Agriculture tell me about these
2: plants and 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 what we you know what what are the biggest baddest ones right now
1: sure and before I do that I, I if you don't mind I'd like to just explain a little bit about some definitions about what we mean by native non-native and and invasive sure. plants so we we define plants according to these different categories And native plants, when we use the term native plants, we mean plants that originally occur within a region as the result of natural processes and they're adapted to local climate and soils. And then non-native plants are those that have been introduced intentionally or accidentally to a new place or a new type of habitat. Um, So we have lots of non-native plants that we depend on, like tomato plants and we, you know, things like hostas and boxwoods and petunias, those are all non-native plants. Um, There are invasive non-native plants and there are um, native plants that are not invasive. So those non-native plants that I just mentioned, the boxwoods, petunias, hostas, um, those are not invasive. So those are not what we're talking about here. We're not um, worried about those. In Missouri, we have almost 3,000 different plant species. And of those, about 2,000 are native and about 900 are non-native. Well, of all of those not 900 non-native plants, only a fraction of those are what we consider invasive. And when we use the term invasive, we mean an aggressive non-native plant whose presence causes or is likely to cause economic or environmental health. So, for example, they include the bush honeysuckle, Japanese honeysuckle. Those are non-native invasive honeysuckles. They're from Asia, and they don't have a lot of natural natural pests here to keep them in check. Um, kudzu is another example. ceresia, ceresia lespidiza spotted knapweed, johnson grass. Those are uh, some other examples of particularly problematic invasive plants also calorie pear also known as Bradford pear
2: are they worse during the summer I mean you wanted to talk about it right now I think because this is a time for them to come out and to start invading
1: well they're they're always in terms of perennial invasive plants I mean they're always there whether we notice them or not but you're right um, in the early spring for example bush honeysuckle is one of the earliest plants to leaf out so it's really noticeable. And then in April, um, that's when we really notice calorie pair, especially like on roadsides, because it's blooming. Um, but yes, and just being outside more and and uh, of course when they're blooming and then setting seed, you could say, yeah, that's that's the worst. Um part of their of the year when they're bad because they're producing offspring, you know, they're producing seeds that can produce more invasive plants. Of course, some some spread also um, vegetatively through rhizomes. But yes, uh we we do especially notice them. And when they're actively growing is a really good time to treat them. Uh, at least there are different times of the year when it's better to treat um, different invasive plants. So, for example, um, you can treat bush honeysuckle now, and when I say treat, um, there are many different ways to treat invasive plants. Uh, some, some, if you have a small enough area, you can pull them up if they're small enough to do that, um, but that can be very time-consuming. If you have an acre, for example, full of, of, of a wooded area, full of invasive Honeysuckle, um, manually pulling it up, even if it's small enough to do that, would be very difficult. Um, Some people are uh, concerned with using herbicides, but herbicides are designed to treat plants. And when you think about protecting native biodiversity, herbicides used very carefully, and of course, always according to the labels are an incredibly important tool for protecting native biodiversity, especially mm. when we use them in a very targeted way. So for example, um, bush honeysuckle is often effectively treated in the fall. You can cut the stems or the trunks and you just paint on the herbicide on the cut stump. So you're using a very small in a very targeted way. And in the fall is when those plants are pulling fluids down into their roots naturally anyway, so that herbicide can be taken up um, through through the stem or the trunk and systematically kill that individual plant.
2: We're talking to Carol David of the Missouri Prairie Foundation and the Invasive Plant Council. Tell us more about how to find out how to fight these plants and and, and the best ways to do it.
1: We have a a comprehensive website, the Missouri Invasive Plant Council does. It's moinvasives.org. And we have a ranked assessment of 142 plants known to have invasive qualities in Missouri. And we have maps showing their spread, their abundance, and their rate of impact in our state and then we also, for the most commonly encountered invasive plants, we've assembled lots of identification and treatment information. It's just really important to think about what are your goals. And when we're talking about protecting native biodiversity, let me give you an example. Um, suppose uh, we have uh, a forest down with, with, with oak and hickory. And those, especially the oak trees, are incredibly important for the food chain. Their acorns provide food for turkey and deer, for example, Um, and more than 500 different butterfly and moth species, their caterpillars, feed on the leaves of oak trees. And all of those insects are food for birds and other wildlife. But But the insects are not hurting those trees. That's been happening for thousands and thousands of years. Those oak trees and hickory are also critically important for Missouri's forest products industry. If that oak hickory forest becomes dominated by bush honeysuckle, the shade produced by the bush honeysuckle is going to shade out oak and hickory seedlings and prevent them from growing. And so all of those species that depend on oaks will decline as well as there will be harm to the timber industry, to sawmills, uh, to people who who harvest timber, their livelihoods can be affected as well. You're listening to Carol David with us on Show Me Today,
2: The Voice of Missouri. And if you really want to replay this, you can also listen to this on any podcast platform to find out more.
1: I also wanted to mention that um, right now through June 15th, we are inviting anyone to Fill out a survey that uh, to to provide their input about on a uh, a list of about 40 plant species that are invasive to give us their feedback about if they would be in support or in opposition to those plant species no longer being sold. So we have an idea about uh, perhaps ceasing the sale of some invasive plants for the benefit of all Missouri. But we are directing this project based on feedback from the agricultural, horticulture, uh, any land management sectors, individual landowners. We want to know what people think about this. And if you go to our website, moinvasives.org, and click on cease the sale idea, you can find a link to the survey. And we've extended the deadline for feedback to June 15. All
2: right. So that would be something you'd take to the legislature? I mean, or is it local government? Who, who would ban the sale of these plants?
1: Depending on the feedback that we receive, we would, if there's enough public support, um, for it. Yes, we would take the idea to the state
2: legislature. Carol Davis with the Missouri Prairie Foundation, and if she's not busy enough, she's with the Invasive Plant Council as well and the Grow Native program. So that's why you're a resource for us. So show me today the voice of Missouri.
3: The first three years of every child's life are critical. Learn more about early intervention. How your baby or toddler plays, learns, talks, acts, and moves give important clues as to how they are developing. If you have any questions or concerns about whether your baby or toddler's development is on track, please call 1 800 515 Baby. That's 1 800 515 2229. Call 1 800 515 Baby. That's 1 800 515
2: 2229.
4: I see you finally got a new helmet! I did.
2: I bought it cheap online. <laughs> <laughs> Follow me. We'll turn off here.
4: I'm right behind you.
2: Watch the cars. They can be crazy. Oh,
4: Teddy, no! Are you okay? Somebody knew something! Uh, uh.
0: Was this young man hit by a car?
1: Yes, and his helmet is smashed.
4: It's a brand new helmet.
0: It's probably a fake. Fakes cause real harm. You're smart, buy smart. Brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Patent and Trademark
5: Office. Over the past few years, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected how we live our daily lives. Today, we also face a mental health pandemic that threatens our well-being as we attempt to rebuild our social networks and communities.
6: The pandemic has reminded us to value family, community, and our human connections. However, it has also left many of us feeling more isolated, confused, and alone, struggling to find meaning amid loss and uncertainty.
5: Today, one in five Americans experience emotional and mental health challenges. But many of us do not understand what we are facing or know how to ask for help.
6: At the American Psychiatric Association Foundation, we understand what you are going through, and we are here to help. Our vision is to build a mentally healthy nation for all. We work every day to eliminate stigma, combat mental illness and substance use disorders, and advance mental health. If you or someone you love needs help, you are not alone. Please visit MentallyHealthyNation.org to learn more.
7: Here on Show Me Today, One Choice
0: is the latest health standard in the battle against drug use. Today, Dave Klaassen talks to addiction psychiatrist and vice president of the Institute for Behavior and Health. Dr. Caroline DuPont from the Pathways to Prevention podcast. Teens and adults that care about them need to know that the one choice of no use of any alcohol, nicotine, marijuana, or other drugs is a realistic goal and that many teens are already making that choice.
5: Let's just jump right into one choice. What is one choice?
8: When we talk about one choice, you might be wondering why is it called that. We haven't really focused on that what that means yet. And and what we mean by that is that for teens, all substance use is related. And really what it boils down to is a choice whether to be someone who chooses to use drugs or chooses not to use drugs. So, our one choice message is just as comprehensive, no use of any alcohol, marijuana, nicotine, or other drugs under the age of 21 for reasons of health. And so as I just explained, we list out those things to make sure we're all on the same page. If you want to say, why don't you just say drug-free? I'm I'm all for that. I love drug-free, but it's important to make sure that we're all saying the same thing. The second component of this one choice is the health standard that Bob was talking about. We have a lot of health standards we talk to young people about that we're really comfortable with. We talk about it all the time, like always wear your bike helmet, wear your seatbelt, eat healthy food. And we don't kind of hesitate to have those standards because they're based in science, because there's a lot of data that shows that those things are important. And it turns out we have also a lot of data and science that shows that it's really important for youth not to use any of those substances during the time that their brain is developing. So the first component of one choice is this developing brain. And the developing brain is something that is continually developing from birth through about the mid-20s. The brain is many different parts of it are continuing to develop and grow and change. And that means that anything that happens to that brain during those years can have like a really big negative impact on that person. And so if you're worried about the present, like right now it could harm them, but it could also harm them in their future in terms of their their future well-being, for example, their educational attainment or their future career even. And so- we think about brain protection when we think about concussion pro- protocols, but we also can think about it in terms of substance use, which also can really powerfully impact that developing brain.
5: So I got to tell you, a couple of things that have jumped out at me already from this conversation is framing prevention as that new health standard, coming at it from that angle, like this is just, this is about health, not about norms or fitting in, perceived norms, misperceptions. It's just a health standard that's based on data. And you had pointed out too that youth are already making this choice. They're already leading this this effort establishing one choice as a health standard.
4: I wanna go back to also to what we were talking about because because when, when Caroline outlined what we're talking about, we're talking about no use of alcohol, nicotine, marijuana and other drugs for reasons of health until the age of 21. Everybody uses, as Caroline said, the drug free, but they don't specify what it is and they don't specify that age. and, And they don't do those things because they don't want to run into the conflicts that are there. They want to have an easier path. We haven't picked the easier path. We've picked the harder path, the clearer path, the one that's unambiguous. And a lot of people in prevention have gotten along for a long time. They'll say that just delay the onset. The goal of prevention is to delay the onset. Well, what does that mean from 13 to 14? You know, what are we talking about? The use of it. And so what we've done is sort of go right at the heart and say, no, it's all one thing. And it does have to do with 21. It's not 18. It's not 16. It's 21.
8: And I think that 21 is really interesting because 21 comes from where it's legal, right? All of these substances are illegal under the ages of 21. So that's the law. Sometimes people are a little confused by that because... People will say to me things like, "Well, marijuana is legal in my state now," and I'm like, "Yeah, it's not legal for recreational use under the age of 21. It wasn't a carte blanche, illegal for everything and for everyone. And that age 21 is really helpful. It's it's matches very well with the brain development that I was talking about. The brain development actually might set that age at 25 because that brain will continue to develop. But 21 is the law, and it's a good one for us to stick with and to say if we can protect that brain until the age of 21." that is a really healthy thing for this person. The other thing I wanted to say about that health standard point, which I think is really important, is a health standard is not a purity test. It's not like, I didn't wear my bike helmet today, so I can't wear my bike helmet tomorrow. Well, that sort of makes no sense at all. Of course, you can always choose to to do a healthy thing. And I think a lot of us adults can think about like how many times we've reinvigorated our health goals. Like I'm gonna exercise regularly or I'm gonna eat healthier foods. That that's a process, a health standards process of trying to improve and protect ourselves and to protect our health for the future. And that's the way this is as well. So that someone who might've used in the past could still make the choice not to use now for reasons of health, in order to protect that developing brain. And so what we're giving them is the information about the developing brain so that people can make healthy choices to protect themselves. Because we can tell kids all the information in the world, but at some point, they're out in the world themselves. They're with their friends. They're at a party. They're in an unexpected situation, and they're going to be offered something or have the opportunity to use something. And they have to already have some core information about how to handle a situation like that. You're not there with them. You as the parent or as their teacher or their physician or or whoever the well-meaning adult you are in that kid's life, you're not with them when they need to make that choice for themselves. And so them thinking, I'm going to always wear my seatbelt. I'm going to wear my bike helmet, even though rental scooters, you know, don't come with them. I'm not going to make that choice or I'm going to choose not to use any of these substances because I'm protecting my brain. Another way to think about this is that substance use disorders are actually pediatric onset diseases. So when we talk about prevention, I often kind of stop people and say, wait, what are we trying to prevent? And different people are trying to prevent different things. Some people are trying to prevent overdoses, and some people are trying to prevent road deaths from alcohol use or drugged driving. But often people are trying to prevent substance use disorders. And we think about substance use disorders usually as adult illnesses. But in fact, 9 out of 10 people with substance use disorder will start using substances before the age of 18, and sadly, usually like... Like way before the age of 18. And we have really important data that shows that the earlier the use and also the more the use is, the more likely it is that that person will develop a substance use disorder and also have other bad outcomes. And I mentioned that before that early substance use is associated with things like poor educational attainment. And that's going to have a lifelong impact on that person. And The way we figured that out was by looking at this big national data. We looked at the data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. This is nationally collected data that's communities all across the country. They looked at 17,000 youth from the ages of 12 to 17, and they collect lots and lots of data. That's not our data, but that data is available for other people to use. And the Institute for Behavior and Health looked at that data and asked of that data a different question. And we asked a question that hadn't been looked at before. We asked, is the use of one substance by adolescents associated with the increased risk for using any other substance, regardless of sequence? So if you use one drug, are you likely to use other drugs? And what we found was, wow. Yes, that is turns out to be a goldmine of information. We can look at it, and we will, with several different drugs. But I want to just remind us that we're talking about youth. And for youth, the three most common drugs are alcohol, nicotine, and marijuana. So those are the questions that we asked. So we took that data of that 17,000 youth, 12 to 17, and we divided it into two groups. The people who said, yes, in the past month, they used marijuana. Nothing about quantity or anything like that. Just, yes, I used marijuana in the past month. And the other group of 12 to 17-year-olds were people who said, no, I did not use any marijuana in the past month. And that's the only distinction between these two groups of people that we looked at. And then we looked at within those groups, the people who did not use any marijuana and the people that did and we saw how much of other drugs did they use? Did they drink alcohol? Did they use nicotine? And did they use other drugs? And what we saw was if they said, no, I didn't use any marijuana in the past month, then their risk of using other substances was really low. So if you look at it as a bar graph, they're these little teeny bars because they were very unlikely to use other drugs. But when you looked at that a second group, which is the 12 to 17 year olds who said, yes, I did use marijuana in the past month. The bars are much bigger. They're much more likely to be using alcohol, to be using nicotine and to be using other drugs. And they're really dramatically more likely to use alcohol in the scary ways that we worry about with kids, like binge drinking, which is five or more drinks in one setting, or heavy alcohol use, which is repeat binge drinking. So there's this very clear correlation between the use of marijuana and the use of all those other substances if they're drinking or they're smoking, they're also likely to be using these other substances. And all of that is going to have that impact on that developing brain.
0: Get tools and strategies to talk to young people in your life at TalkAboutItMo.com. That's TalkAboutItMo.com. Show me today.
4: All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more
5: information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov.
1: Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that i wanted to uphold in my own life
7: i wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success not alcohol or other drugs i said it a lot and i'm glad you took it to heart
5: talk they hear you for more information visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov when it comes to vaping the truth can get clouded so let's make it clear Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not.
2: Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs.
5: And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body.
2: And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes.
5: Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s.
6: Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing
1: to youth.
5: And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices
1: with appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media.
5: Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not.
6: So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you.
5: For more information, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov.
10: Email from school. about the incident today? Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on?
1: None i mean you saw derek at the game last night too did you have a clue
10: no but you know teachers like me parents we don't always know as much as you guys do kids hear first about what's going on with other kids
2: half the time it's rumors
10: it can be hard to tell sometimes but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol prescription drugs bullying violence anything you need to tell an adult mom or me a teacher coach school counselor
0: Back here on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri, I'm Cameron Connor. More armadillos are entering and staying in the Missouri area. While the animal is a peaceful creature that does not appear to be affecting any Missouri ecosystems, you may see more crossing highways. We are joined here with the Missouri Department of Conservation's St. Louis Regional Media Specialist, Dan Zarlinga. All right, Dan, let's hop right into it. Talk to me about this population increase.
11: They are definitely uh, migrating in 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 larger numbers and, uh, you know, spreading out through more and more of the state. And the most likely cause for that is our warming climate. Um, As the average temperatures get higher, um, the armadillo can go farther and farther north and one of the reasons that that enables them to do that is because they don't actually hibernate like some mammals do they they stay awake through the entire winter and they must have food throughout the entire winter and they get their food from digging in the dirt and the and the ground and and finding insects and things just under the surface and that's how they uh, basically survive and if they get to a spot where the temperatures are low enough during the winter where the ground freezes for several days, like nine days during the winter, then that will uh, disable them to get their food. And so that's where their limit is as far as traveling farther north. But as our winters have become, the average temperatures at least of our winters have become warmer, we have fewer days where the grounds are frozen like that. So that's, that's why they're able to survive farther and farther north. And while they've mostly been sighted in Missouri, the most uh, incidents we have are right around the I-70 corridor and south. We have sightings of armadillos, some rare sightings as far north as the Iowa border. So they entered the state more or less from the southwest. They were some of the earliest accounts in the 1980s came in from the Joplin area and Springfield and and those areas of the state. And they've been kind of going up sort of along that I-44 corridor and then north of that throughout the last several decades, to the point where now they're not uncommon to be seen in the St. Louis area and, uh, you know, like I said, even farther, occasionally farther north than than I-70. So uh, they kind of moved in along that route through the the southwest part of the state. But yeah, they're certainly in the southeast part and, you know, just about anywhere below I-70 now and, and parts above even.
0: Usually, when let's say you're out hiking or something out in one of Missouri's great trails or anything like that, me personally, I've seen a couple of them. You know, they they seem like very, very timid, very innocent creatures is probably the best way to describe it. So I don't think they're ever going to cause any damage from that. But it seems like where they can get people a little startled or where it can make some mistakes from the human end of things is when these things are crossing the highways. It seems like whether you're looking to the left or the right, you'll be able to point out at least a few armadillos that have been unfortunately struck on the way to wherever your destination is. Does that seem to be one of the things that's causing some danger or at least some alarming instances?
11: Well, I mean, as far as the, uh, the, we see them so much on the highway dead and, and uh that's very common. It's not so much probably a hazard for cars, although I guess it could cause some, some potential uh moderate damage to a vehicle. But um the reason we see that is because armadillos don't have very good eyesight. Um, they're practically blind as bad, so only they're armadillos. And they uh, when they cross roads, they get startled by the sound uh, of the vehicle and the vibrations of the vehicle. And one of the things that armadillos do as a natural uh, protection is they jump straight up in the air and uh, several feet. And that's usually enough to probably startle a predator or disorient a predator so that when the armadillo returns to the ground, it can scurry away. Unfortunately, when it comes to cars, it doesn't work out so well for them because when they jump, do that little jump, they end up landing right in the grill of a vehicle and getting uh, clobbered by it, unfortunately, and it doesn't turn out too good for the armadillo. And that's why we see so many of them uh, by the sides of the road. It's possible it could cause some damage to a grill or whatever as well, but usually no, like major fatal accidents would, would occur by being uh, by striking an armadillo, just some, some damage to your vehicle. And the reason we see them dead by the side of the road is because they get hit by cars in that fashion. And the other reason is because they're, they tend to be nocturnal, especially in the summertime when it's hotter. So they don't go out much in the daytime. Um, I myself have seen them on trails too, hiking at night. Um, there are, again, they don't have very good eyesight, so you will probably startle it as much as it will startle you. Uh, it won't see you and you'll be there and it it won't know until you're practically right on top of it. They do have a really good sense of smell and that's what they use to find their critters underground that they eat.
0: I guess, what are some standard protocols if you're seeing one of these animals on the side of the road? I guess to slow down as much as you can, but you should probably try to limit swerving to a minimum, if I were to guess.
11: Yeah, so what you're saying is the same advice we give folks for deer and things, too, is, you know, whenever you're going in an area, I mean, it's always good, safe driving practice in general to make sure you focus on the road and not distractions like cell phones and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, use your bright lights if, if you can, uh, especially in, in, if you're driving in more rural areas where you're more likely to see armadillos. Um, and just keep an eye out, you know, and and drive carefully. Uh, and definitely, though, I mean, if you are in a situation where you're going to encounter that armadillo. On your grill or whatever. I mean, don't swerve to try to avoid it if it puts you in danger of coming in, you know, contact with other vehicles or ditch at the side of the road or whatever. Uh, if you have to, you have to hit it. You have to hit it, and you know, just accept that rather than putting yourself or other motorists in danger trying to avoid it. Um, at least with. Compared to deer, an armadillo is going to do a lot less damage to your vehicle than a deer would, and uh, not, and probably not put put you in any uh, danger like hitting a deer might. But um, you know, it's just one of those things you don't want to cause uh, conflicts with other motorists or put yourself in danger trying to avoid it. Um, armadillos really don't really cause a problem other than that inconvenience of being killed on the roads. That's inconvenience for us, uh, not a lot more for the armadillo, obviously. But uh, the only other thing they might do is they do tend to dig through. Yards. Sometimes they might, you know, dig up a flower bed or some grass, trying to find insects. Um, But other than that, they really don't cause any any major harm or no negative impacts to the ecosystem that we can determine. Um, But I guess we'd be looking on them as a naturalized form of wildlife they they've come here on their own they haven't like unlike an invasive species which is usually brought here by human activity they've done it completely on their own and they're colonizing on their own it's a completely you know natural process from the armadillo standpoint so I mean since they don't seem to be causing any harm other than occasional inconvenience with maybe digging up someone's yard, which could happen with a groundhog too so there's you know no no different than that um, they don't seem to be having a negative impact beyond that inconvenience. So we're just kind of informally monitoring, I guess, just to try to track their progress across the state.
0: It seems like no matter what, the uh, the Armadillo population is friendly and they're here to stay. <laughs> That's <laughs> All right, well, this has been Dan Zarlinga. He is the media specialist for the St. Louis region of Missouri Department of Conservation. We've been talking here today about the increased armadillo population and sightings. These mammals are here to stay, and there is a chance that you might see one crossing the road. So if so, make sure to follow your standard safety protocols whenever you see an animal. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. And if you tuned in late, make sure to search Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri, wherever you get your podcast.
5: Over the past few years, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected how we live our daily lives. Today, we also face a mental health pandemic that threatens our well-being as we attempt to rebuild our social
6: networks and communities. The pandemic has reminded us to value family, community, and our human connections. However, it has also left many of us feeling more isolated, confused, and alone, struggling to find meaning amid loss and uncertainty.
5: Today, 1 in 5 Americans experience emotional and mental health challenges. Challenges, but many of us do not understand what we are facing or know how to ask for help.
6: At the American Psychiatric Association Foundation, we understand what you are going through, and we are here to help. Our vision is to build a mentally healthy nation for all. We work every day to eliminate stigma, combat mental illness and substance use disorders, and advance mental health. If you or someone you love needs help, you are not alone. Please visit MentallyHealthyNation.org to learn more.
3: The first three years of every child's life are critical. Learn more about early intervention. How your baby or toddler plays learns talks acts and moves give important clues as to how they are developing if you have any questions or concerns about whether your baby or toddler's development is on track please call 1-800-515-baby that's 1-800-515-2229 call 1-800-515-baby that's 1-800-515-2229 i
11: see you finally got a new
2: helmet i did Spotted bought it cheap online. <laughs>
7: <laughs> Follow me.
2: We'll turn off here.
1: I'm right behind you.
2: Watch the cars. They can be crazy.
1: Patty! Um, no! Are you okay? Somebody knew something! Uh, uh.
2: Was this young man hit by a
0: car?
1: Yes, and his helmet is smashed. It's a brand new helmet.
0: It's probably a fake. Fakes cause real harm. You're smart, buy smart. Brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office.
7: You've
0: tuned in to Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. Hunting and fishing, check the box on many Missourians' hobby list. It is also a relative bargain compared to what other states charge for their permits. However, there is a proposition by the Missouri Department of Conservation to install a minor increase on these seasonal permits. Missouri Department of Conservation's Deputy Director Aaron Jeffries talks with Marshall Griffin to explain the reasoning.
12: I think we all realize that uh, nothing costs the same uh, that it did a year or two years ago, and the cost of conservation business has continued to go go up over uh, the past couple of years. Uh, especially when you look at uh, habitat management on our conservation areas, you know, back in uh, 1999, uh, last time some of our permit prices actually changed, uh, a contract prescribed burn was around $13. Uh, today, uh, in some cases, it's approaching a hundred dollars an acre. Just one example of many.
9: Would it be a simplification, or would it be fair to say that inflation and just higher prices in general has uh, led to this uh, to this request to raise fees?
12: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then also uh, looking ahead at some of the major construction that we have going on. You know, many of us have been to Bennett Springs. Uh, That's close to a a $50 million project. Uh, Once we're done with Bennett, we're going to be looking at Montauk hatchery. That would probably be well over $50 million. Uh, Our wetlands uh, are quite expensive and have uh, really taken a beating from the floods. So whether it's pump stations or renovations, uh, you're looking at Shell, Osage, Fountain Grove, uh, and other renovations on our wetlands, uh, with most, most of those probably costing more than $10 million. And that's just a few examples. Uh, many of our nature centers are over 30 years old, uh, Our unstaffed and staffed shooting ranges. We have 70 of those located around the state. You know, we got a lot, a lot of work to do there as well.
9: Some people may not know exactly what a fish hatchery is used for, I mean p- people who regularly fish I'm sh- obviously would obviously know but just for the average person who maybe n- is not into the outdoors e- explain the crucial need of a fish hatchery.
12: Yeah, a g- great question. Um uh, so we have nine hatcheries, uh five that are cold water and, and they uh are entirely focused on producing and raising trout. Uh there are a few private hatcheries here in the state. Uh, but they would by no means meet the supply and demand that uh, that we need. Uh, but those five hatcheries, uh, they produce both rainbow and brown trout, which then are stocked at the uh, the trout parks and on several hundred miles of trout st- streams like the Current, Merrimack, and Niangua, and, of course, uh, the premier trout fishing location, uh, Lake Tanicomo. Uh, we then have four warm water hatcheries that produce uh you know everything from hybrid striped bass the muskie to channel catfish the bluegill the largemouth bass a lot of those are stocked in urban lakes in kansas city st louis columbia jeff city st joe uh, to provide that close to home fishing opportunity for citizens you know our we have natural reproduction that occurs but by no means would it meet the uh, demand of the uh, angling pressure that we have out there.
9: You're listening to Show Me Today. This is Marshall Griffin, and we're speaking with Aaron Jeffries. He's the deputy director for the Missouri Department of Conservation. Now, these um, there's of course numerous types of um, fees or, or permits uh, for whether whether it's for hunting or for fishing. But give us an example, uh, or give us a couple of examples of what the current prices are, say for deer hunting or for fishing and what the proposed price hike would be?
12: Yeah, I mean for most of our resident permits we're looking I mean a really modest price increase of dollar fifty. Uh, so deer hunting, I think deer's either seventeen or nineteen and it's only gonna no it's seventeen dollars. It's gonna increase to eighteen dollars. So one dollar increase. Uh, fishing permit twelve uh you're gonna go to thirteen dollars. So there's not a lot of things that you can do for, for $12 or $18 nowadays uh, and have such a, a great recreational opportunity. You know, you look at deer hunting permit, firearm permit, eight, going from 17 to 18 Surrounding state averages well over $50 for a, a deer hunting permit. And the price changes just aren't for residents. Uh, we're also increasing non-resident permit fees as well. Uh, most of our resident permits... Hadn't changed since the early two thousands. Uh, non resident permits were increased in twenty twenty, so um, they're going up as well.
9: Now these are still officially just proposals. There's from what I understand, there's a, a comment period from the public, and then a, a final vote will be taken later in the year. Tell us uh, what if somebody wants to comment on this, uh, saying, "Well, this is still too much," or, or something along those lines, or has concerns. Uh, I guess tell us about that process.
12: Absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the Com- Conservation Commission uh, took initial action at the May Commission meeting. We put out a press release about that. In that press release, we, we highlighted the reasons why we were looking at this, but also highlighted that, the, uh, that citizens can provide comments through the official uh, comment period through the Secretary of State, uh, which is July 2nd through August 4th. And uh, they can go to the department webpage and, and find a link, and lead them. That, that will lead them to the, the official uh, comment page.
9: And all uh, all comments will be made in this fashion. Uh, will any public comments in person be uh, be taking place at the the next in person commission meeting?
12: Yeah, and so the commission will consider the uh, to either approve, amend, or decline uh, at the September commission meeting.
9: Has there been any feedback yet, even though the official comment period hasn't started yet? Has there been any feedback, uh, you know, either positive or negative about the proposed uh, fee hikes?
12: Uh, the last time I checked, it's been a little bit of both, but we've actually had more comments in support of the permit changes.
9: And are there any particular groups, uh, advocate groups for hunters, fishers, or outdoorsmen? Have they uh, sounded off on it yet?
12: Nope, we have not heard from any organizations at this point.
9: Now, um, once, this, once the vote takes place, uh, if, it, if the fee hikes are approved, what happens then?
12: It, uh, if it's approved, uh, they would become effective February 29th, 2024.
9: And uh, th- this will be backtracking a little bit, but um, I have a list of um, some of the proposed uh, increases. And even though the prices do go up, they don't seem to go up very much, as, as, you, as you have said it does seem to be a lot more expensive to say to to go across a state line somewhere. So I, I'm guessing that's a big selling point as well. Is like, well, yeah, they're going up, but you know, it's still going to be cheaper than to, you know, to, to hunt and fish in Missouri than in other States is how, how important is that to get that message
12: out? I, I think that's actually part of it. And and also, we also recognize that people are paying the sales tax, uh, but all citizens pay the sales tax and, and we're blessed to have that here in Missouri because it really provides a lot of opportunities that other folks in other states uh, can't experience, such as, uh, you know, most Missourians are within 45 minutes of a of a shooting range. Uh, we have numerous nature centers uh, and then free publications and on and on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, when we go into determining the price, uh, we are absolutely looking at the what people are paying through the sales tax. Uh, but also, you know, we hear a lot from folks that, i would like for us to raise those non-resident permit fees like other states have done. And I don't think that's a wise thing to always put it on the backs of non-residents because a lot of non-residents come back to Missouri for, to home to visit with family and friends. And would hate to price them out of having that experience because that, that's what the outdoors is about, uh, uh, having that experience with family and friends. Uh, and so everybody should have that opportunity. And from what
9: I understand, there will be, um, there, there's certain age groups where um, there are no fees and that will that remain the same
12: yeah we're not changing any of the exemptions related to uh, you know youth under the age of uh, 15 and under uh, free small game and fishing and uh, of course uh, the senior exemption for individuals over the age of 65 for small game and, and fishing so none of that's changing
9: so that those remain free yes sir all right that was Aaron Jeffries, the Deputy Director of the Missouri Department of Conservation. Now, if you're tuning in later, want to hear more, subscribe to Show Me Today on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri.
4: Show Me Today.